Welcome to Rainy Day Rabbit Holes, a uniquely Pacific Northwest podcast. I'm Shay. And I'm Jody. And on each episode, we will be sharing the mysterious, quirky, and fascinating stories of PNW. So grab your North Face jacket, strap on your Tevas, and pour yourself a cup of Northwest roasted coffee, and let's fall down the rabbit hole. So today, we are going to meet Tacoma's millionaire magician, Ray Gamble, an entrepreneur with a flair for the mystical. From his varied business ventures to his quirky hobbies and his mesmerizing magic shows, Ray Gamble's life is a spellbinding journey through Tacoma's past. Let's go ahead and begin with a quote. A good case could be made that the quirkiest, most ingenious celebrity magician in Pacific Northwest history was an impish Tacoma millionaire named Ray Gamble. Gamble's life story defies a concise telling, in part because he was continually revising it, continually perfecting the narrative as if it were patter to accompany a great parlor trick. That was the opening to an article in the Columbia Magazine of Northwest History from fall of 2018, written by Michael Sean Sullivan. Michael is a multifaceted man of many talents with a passion for history and storytelling. Not only has he been teaching history for over three decades, he plays many roles in preserving countless buildings, is the historian for the Washington State Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, advises the National Trust for Historic Preservation, is a board member of HistoryLink, a principal of Artifacts Consulting, and Michael, what else? <laughs> well, would you start listing it all, it gets lengthy, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, I don't do all those things at the same time. So. <laughs> so we could go on and on about his many contributions to historical preservation in the Puget Sound, but most importantly to us today, he is a repository of Tacoma history. Jody and I were fortunate enough to meet Michael at a history presentation put on by the McMinniman's Elks Temple last month. So when I decided that we needed to do an episode on the mysterious character of Ray Gamble, the only man to call was, may I call you Professor Sullivan? If you want. <laughs> <laughs> so please welcome the man whose noggin is a Pacific Northwest treasure, Michael Sullivan. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on the show welcome, today, Michael. Michael. Thank you. Welcome, welcome, Pleasure Michael. to be here. You had a question yes, for Michael. Yes. So Michael, 10-year-old Michael, tell me, uh, your uncle comes to visit, hasn't seen you in a while, and he says, Michael, you're getting to be a big kid. Do you know what you want to be when you grow up? What did 10-year-old Michael say? Oh, boy. I don't know. I, uh, You know, my affection for history came from my parents who just, you know, my dad and mom would load us in the car. We'd all go off to some historic place. Whenever one of those big plaques showed up on the side of the road, we always stopped. Yeah. You know, we, and then we had the backstory, and then my dad's version or my mom's version of the story. Well, the plaque says this, but here's what really happened. So, I think I learned a fascination with history, but I also learned from my parents the malleability of history. Time doesn't replay itself, so it exists in our memory and in our stories, and it passes down from mm -hmm. generations. And all that kind of machinery of history fascinated me. So you're but, raised in the love of history. Yeah, mm -hmm. I got a kind of got a love of that. 
and then I, by the time I got to college, I was down in California. I started at UCLA as a film student. Oh. So I kind of got fascinated with just storytelling in general in a cinematic way. But I kind of bent into theater history from film, and then I got deeper into the history part of it. And then by the time I got into graduate school, I got some fellowships and went off and went to Alaska and kind of got out doing projects that were applied history and and public history as I think of it today. And that was kind of what became my career path. So I have some questions in the realm of historical preservation. You've been involved in a lot of historical preservation projects, especially here in Tacoma. Is there any project in particular that stands out as kind of your crown jewel of projects you've worked on, the thing that's most special to you? Well, artifacts, we were based in Tacoma, but most of our work actually wasn't in the city. Um, I was the city historic preservation officer when the city, I came here right out of graduate school and kind of my first big public job was the preservation officer. And that was right the time when we were saving Union Station and the mm. beginning of the reuse of the warehouse district. So I was working on the city side and had a pretty good seat to watch all that happen. But I had itchy feet and uh, a colleague of mine, Valerie Savinsky and I were both at the city at the time, just started with her husband, started artifacts. We became conservators for the state capitol right before the Nisqually earthquake. So we were involved in the restoration of the buildings on the state capitol. We worked on King Street Station renovation. That was great. We we did the planning and restoration work on Ernest Hemingway's home in Ketchum, Idaho. Did work in Alaska, uh, Western State Hospital, Northern State Hospital. We did did a survey of barns across the state, theaters, (laughs) I mean, all kinds of, you know, because it fueled my passion for history just because we were working in such physical places and objects that were intimately connected with state history. And there was a kind of a storytelling going on there. So it just kind (laughs) of made things worse. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any preservation projects that you consider to be a loss? Were there any things you were unable to actually preserve or buildings that perhaps have been demolished that you had hoped would be preserved? Is there anything that stands out? Oh, yeah. Too many to count. I mean, you know, we're in the middle right now. We're going to lose the House of Tomorrow, this mm-hmm. quirky house mm-hmm. out near Puyallup, Bert Smizer's house, who's kind of a Ray Gamble kind of character in his own right. He was involved with the Java Jive, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, really, you know, we lost the Luzon building downtown Tacoma, which was a Daniel Burnham design building. I mean, arguably one of the most technologically important buildings from the 1890s, the first time the technology of skyscrapers out of Chicago was applied out here. Oh, wow. That building was demolished. I know the landmark on the sound right now is slated for demolition, and that hurts my heart. Yep. I have an affinity for Masonic buildings because of McMinimins. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think we, you know, we don't just lose the building, but we lose that sort of immediacy of the story that goes with it when it's not there. And I I talk to people all the time about the power of place and how Mm. when you go somewhere, we go everywhere our whole lives, we're moving around and but when you go someplace and somebody implants a story that you connect with that place, 
your mind, your instincts are to remember that better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there is a there is a intellectual and emotional kind of thing that happens there. So when we lose a place, we lose a building, we lose that marker. You know, we're all diminished a little bit. We forget yes. a little bit as a culture. Well, I yes. think that's we the beginning of the end someday that people yeah. won't remember now. Eventually people won't remember. I, you watch the fire at Notre Dame with just utter terror, you know, when mm -hmm. that happened. But then, you know, you watch the effort going into the restoration. Yeah. You watch that building be repaired and you just feel like there's just like a almost a medical <laughs> uh, remedy for for cultural well-being, you know, when yeah. you see that much effort going into restored. It's easy to talk about the ones we've lost, but I tend to focus on the union stations that we find a creative yes. way to reuse or all the warehouses at UWT campus and all the backstory that then gets layered into the campus, you know. How do you feel about what McMinimins does with their properties? We worked with them, so I have to disclose that we Elks? worked with them. Yeah, we worked with them directly when we were working. They were clients of ours. So we did the wow. Anderson School project in Bothell. And oh, we worked did you? In, so we did several of the Oregon projects with them and then but the piece de resistance, the great thing was doing the Elks Lodge mm -hmm. and Tacoma. It's beautiful. Unbelievable how cool that is. And you know, it's <laughs> it's too much for some people. I mean, if mm -hmm. you're looking for a stereotype, you know, Ramada Inn or yeah. you know, just a standard place, it's not for you. But just in terms of creating that sense of place and that unique storytelling element to the space, mm -hmm. to the building. They do it wonderfully. It's, it's, a, it's like a, a hotel, restaurant, bar, museum. museum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, We go through there all the time and yeah. find something new every time. Exactly. And Mike, you know, and his family, Steve, and all those guys, the, the whole family are just sort of laughing all the way along at what they do. I mean, it's a big business, and they mm -hmm. built a huge – at what they do, they're as good as anybody. Mm -hmm. It's so but, unique. But their compensation comes in just the satisfaction of watching an old building come back to life Absolutely. with a whole new purpose. And that must were be you, fun to work with them. Were you involved in Edgefield at all? Uh, no, a little bit around the edges uh, okay. with their history unit. Well, let's let's move on. Before we move on real quick, though, there is one project that piques my curiosity right around the corner. Well, there's two around the corner, but one that you're intimately involved with, I think, is the Blue Mouse Theater. Yeah. Well, uh, my wife and I were part of the original 17 people that bought it when it was in trouble gosh, mm. 20 more years ago. Okay. So, um, and then we restored it and put it back to the Blue Mouse. It was called the Bijou when we bought it, and it was kind of limping along a little bit, and the lady who owned it was just kind of at the end of being able, she was having some disability problems. So Bill Evans, who's kind of the mayor of Proctor, got in touch with a bunch of us and said, let's... <laughs> It's like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's buy a theater, you know. So, well, I, so. I have a daughter and her family that live just down the street. They appreciate you doing that. It's they, a great little theater. Yeah, it's yeah. a great yeah. little theater. They they yep. do visit it. And it's uh, not only is it a historic building and a great kind of purpose. It does. It's one of those things that connects community and yes. it builds a sense of neighborhood and it gets us out of our little boxes and in 
to intimacy with one another, you know. Well, we could talk about all your projects and I thought the your other, history. Oh, oh please, please, I please. thought the other thing you were going to mention, and something I'm <laughs> very interested in right now, is in the restoration of Nettie Asbury House up at 13th and M. New, Nettie, Asbury, right Nettie Asbury is this amazing woman who lived to be 102. She was born the year that Lincoln was assassinated and lived long enough to watch on her television here in Tacoma the assassination of Martin Luther King. She was an African-American pianist and, and artist. Uh, she lived 75 years of her 102 years oh, in a house on the hilltop. Oh. And the Colored Women's Club of Tacoma got help with the state legislature to buy the house, and we're going to be restoring the house as a cultural hub. It's right up next to the community house on okay. the hilltop. Oh, that's and fantastic. It's a great. Her music room in the house oh. is still there. And oh, wow. So it's going to be a wow, great... Wow, wow, and the But in terms of backstory, as a early pioneer in at the early part of the century, you know, being an advocate for women getting the vote here in Washington mm -hmm. 10 years before the, you know, before United women States. got the right mm -hmm. to vote uh, nationwide. Uh, she was a <laughs> big combative character in the fight against the ideas in The Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith's great racist masterpiece mm -hmm. film, this big, huge movie that everybody went to that was just embarrassing for this, mm -hmm. the way it told its story. And Nettie just dove right into the fight. You know, she's just... But anyway, another time. But you know, definitely. I, now it's going to be on our list. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Every time you tell us another story, we're like, oh, now we got another list. <laughs> on yeah, list. and there's a story about Nettie on my blog, on my website. You'll Great. find a story about Nettie Great. Asbury. But yeah. Thank That's you. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, we'll look into that and maybe she we'll get like together I'm... and talk about it again. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds right. like you've been one of those lucky fellas who's had a career that's really more fun than it is work. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Passion. Good for you. Yep. Well, as much as I would love to go on talking for two hours with you about all yeah, of this, and we will have to do that someday. We're here to talk about Ray Gamble. First, let's take a quick break. Island Crimes and Mysteries. Welcome to Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, the podcast that delves deep into the haunting true stories of Irish crimes and unexplained disappearances. From the pages of history to the recent past, I bring you the compelling narratives that have both shattered and fascinated the Emerald Isle. Join me every fortnight on Sunday evenings at 7pm Greenwich Mean Time as I embark on a journey to uncover a different story each time. With the help of family members and friends in some episodes, I paint a vivid picture of who these individuals truly were, their aspirations for the future and the deep love they shared with their loved ones before everything changed forever. So mark your calendars and join me, your host Nules, and follow my channel, Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, in order to never miss an episode. Together, let's shed light on the lesser known aspects of Ireland's past and explore the mysteries that still haunt its present. So keep your eyes open and your mind curious, and don't miss out on a single episode of Ireland Crimes and Mysteries, part of the Spreaker Prime Network and also available on all major podcast platforms. You can also follow me on my socials over on Instagram, Facebook, X, formerly known as Twitter, and TikTok to keep up to date with all my latest stories. Ireland Crimes. 
Crimes and Mysteries. Today we are talking about Ray Gamble, one of Tacoma's most interesting historical characters. Not much can be found about him online, aside from Michael's excellent articles and newspaper clippings. But we are lucky enough to have with us today the largest repository of Ray Gamble knowledge, which is Michael Sullivan's head. All right, Michael, why don't you start us off? Take us on a story through time. Tell us a story about this guy, Ray Gamble. Well, Ray, his life, as we understand it, is in his own autobiography of stories that he kind of wrote and told. So as Ray tells the story, the origin story, and we know from census records and so on that Ray was born 1888, and by about 1905, uh, he was here in Tacoma. He was born, I think he was born in Arkansas, and then made his way up here kind of on his own, young man. The way he tells the story, he gets off the train station down at the old Villard station, so before Union Station was built, gets off and looks around, and it's raining out, and he realizes everybody's kind of lugging their baggage around, and so he just takes his bag, throws it into a locker, and begins immediately carrying people's bags for him in exchange for money. So I think, (laughs) I'm not so sure that isn't an apocryphal story, but Ray's point was that he was an industrious young man, that he was going to find a way to make a living uh, when he got here. We do know that to be true as he plays that out in his whole life. Ray ends up settling in Tacoma by the 19... 12, 1913, he's working in a fish store downtown. And, uh, like really, a clerk? well, yeah, he's a clerk, but eventually he'll own the fish oh, market. Gotcha. But he starts mm-hmm. out just as a clerk. And this is really where the, fir- the myth making starts, really, in the very beginning, because as Ray tells it, he's working in the fish store down there and he's one day approached by a Chinese, comes in and wants to buy some shrimp from him. The Chinese man doesn't really have any money, but he's got a little carved elephant that he wants to trade to Ray for the shrimp. And Ray decides, what the heck? It sounds like a good deal, and the guy need, looks like he needs food. And so he makes the trade, and it just kind of is transformational for Ray. It's a story he tells over and over throughout mm-hmm. his entire life. That almost as if by magic, as soon as the gentleman had left the shop, a, another fellow who he knew comes in and says, Ray, I forgot I owed you this money. And he gives him a $20 gold piece. <laughs> And out of the blue, and Ray immediately associates that bit of luck with the elephant with the $20. And that would be uh, something that would stick with him his entire life. And Ray's upbeat just view of the world was this idea that he was just a lucky man. That was just his view of things. And later on in life, he would return to that attitude over his long 86-year-long life, he would just constantly, that was his worldview. I'm a lucky guy. I'm a lucky you guy. Know, so well, that started his, it triggered his passion for elephant collecting? It did. Yeah. It created a, a passion, a, a playfulness kind of about collecting elephants that would become a passion. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another version of it that connects directly with Ray's fortunes, and that is a story he tells that 
the Chinese gentleman who had come here was a firecracker man, which meant that during the railroad building era, a lot of the demolition work that was done in digging tunnels and doing the construction work of the railroad was left to uh, Chinese specialists, men that were called firecracker men, and they were experts at explosives, nitroglycerin and dynamite. Okay. And that Chinese gentleman in giving him the elephant had also, this is a little blurry, but somehow it shared with him some of the secrets that came from being able to work with explosives. Hmm. And this was a high-risk business. I mean, of the Chinese demolition experts, the firecracker men, probably the most dangerous, hmm. you know, industrial job there was in building railroads. And to some degree, a cynic would say that the Chinese were viewed as somewhat dispensable. As so they got, they sure. got the work, you know. Mm -hmm. So that whole idea. But anyway, as Ray said, that the Chinese elder, the old firecracker man, had shared with him the fact that over time, the reason that there was some confidence taken in the demolition work was that there were some devices, some secrets to being able to stabilize uh, the explosives. Mm -hmm. And you have to imagine, you know, there would be a team of uh, demolition experts, they're just imagine you've got a sheer rock face and you've got to expose a shelf in that rock face for the railroad to move across on a steep mountain hillside. They would lower in a wicker basket on a rope, one of the firecracker men would go down carrying the explosives and he would drill out a hole in the rock with a hammer and chisel oh, and would set a charge and light the charge. And then the guys upstairs would just as fast as they could pull the guy up out of the blast zone before the whole rock face explodes and goes away. So if away. he miscalculated the length of yep. that wick or if the men above were not pulling quite fast or enough. Or if the rope got caught up on oh, something. Oh, yeah, goodness. Yep. So, and the same thing was true doing the tunnel work where, you know, you'd set a charge in a tunnel and, uh, you know, if the rock was uh, weak up above or whatever, uh, you know, if the charge was too big, you wouldn't be able to get out. In a way, setting charges in a tunnel is like being in a gun barrel, you know. <laughs> but anyway, what Ray would tell was the gentleman shared with him was that they would in mortars and pestle, they would pulverize dried wood to create a flower, a wood flower material. And the wood flower, when mixed with dynamite, mixed with nitroglycerin, mm. which is what dynamite would eventually become, it would stabilize, it would make the uh, nitroglycerin less volatile, less... Okay more tolerant to being shaken around a little bit without exploding. Okay. But once the explosion went off, the cellulose material would actually explode with it. It would be an accelerant. Mm. And it's the principle of flour in a silo. If you set yeah. a charge in flour, flour is so combustible as a material, it just explodes. Well, mm. wood flour would make the nitroglycerin uh, more stable, but it would also accelerate the size of the explosion. Mm -hmm. So it was an ideal material. So you could use less nitroglycerin if yeah. you had this wood flour in here, which was a waste product. 
You could use you would right? you would put the flour in with the nitroglycerin. It would make it safer to handle, but it would make it a, make a bigger explosion. And that's true. I mean, that hmm. was just kind of science in those days. So Ray remembered that. Ray's working in the fish store and just tucks that bit of information away. But Ray also realizes all day walking around the fish store as he gets a little older, pretty soon he owns the fish store. And he realizes that um, he could buy sawdust and put sawdust on the floor in the morning. And then all the fish guts and the smell and all the liquid and every stuff would go down. The sawdust would absorb it. And then at the end of the day, he'd sweep up all the sawdust and put it in a can, throw it away, and then, and the shop stayed cleaner. Mm-hmm. So Ray then, this he would have been downtown, uh, his fish store was. This By this time, we're all the way up to about 1915. Ray's got a fish store. He's married by then. <laughs> he decides, hey, I can go down, go out to the big sawmill on the waterfront and get all the sawdust in the world, get more sawdust than I need. It's a waste product out there. Were they just giving, let him take whatever yeah. he wanted for Ray free? Ray was smart enough to go out. He mm-hmm. went out to the St. Paul and Tacoma Sawmill, which is out in the middle of the water in the tide mm-hmm. flats, mm-hmm. signed a contract with them and said, basically, I, I'll haul this waste material away. But in exchange you got to let me have the exclusive contract to do it. Ah. i got to be the guy to do it. So they say, okay, sure, we'll get rid of it. doesn't cost us anything to get rid of it. Ray turns around and starts a business with wagons, selling sawdust to all the bars and restaurant kitchens and any smelly business that was downtown. His people would come along and they'd deliver sawdust on the floor in the morning. And at the end of the day or the end of the week, depending on the contract, they'd come along and pick up the sawdust and haul it away and just get rid of it. And that became a business. Hmm. So Ray got into the business of selling sawdust as a you know, as a utility for all the businesses downtown. I'm surprised he didn't come up with a way to then use the dirty sawdust right. and something else and sell that on to somebody else. <laughs> that <laughs> came next. Oh, because, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'd think like, right. <laughs> yeah. So then he decides that one of the things to get rid of the sawdust, he was taking it, he just created a big burner down on the waterfront and go down and burn the sawdust. But then he decides, hey, you know, I could sell the sawdust just for fuel. Because it burns really good. And so then he starts a fuel business. And he starts selling not just sawdust, but small scrap wood, too, for people that are using wood as a fuel for heating in their homes. And he gets into the business. And now he's down on Dock Street. He's got out of the fish business. So by the 1920s, he's out of the fish business. And he's in the business of taking wood waste really from the from the mills and the big by the by now we've got sash and door companies that are making and and outdoor siding mills people that are putting bigger and bigger pieces of waste wood and he's picking them up and then recycling them basically Mm. into fuel burning fuel and also into now making wood flour which he was he the sawdust that he was using for turning into fuel? Was he compacting it into bricks or pellets or something, or would people just buy sawdust and put that right into their stove? No, he was buying the sawdust and he was bringing it to his company, Gamble Company, okay. Gamble Fuel. It started out. He started the company, and at his site down on Dock Street, he had a big crusher thing that would take the sawdust and turn it into flour. Okay. Then he was also taking 
sawdust itself was not he was doing a value added thing with the with the sawdust he was pulverizing the sawdust he had he wasn't just reselling it as sawdust okay, okay. but he was also starting to have lots of wood scraps and stuff that he was selling as fuel at the same time now about 1915 1914-15, the big push is on to build a army base at Fort Lewis, mm. what would become Fort Lewis. And it's the development of that base where Ray starts selling fuel and also saw the wood flour he was producing was being used in the creation of linoleum. I mean, there were a lot of industrial applications for it. I saw Bakelite was one thing that wood flour was used for yep. is in the creation of yep. Bakelite, which... I love Bakelite. I think it's really fun. Yeah. I yeah. find that in an Oh, and I love linoleum, too. It's cool, you know. It's, yeah, linseed oil and sawdust. Yep. <laughs> it's Pretty, great. Yeah. <laughs> but th- these things are all sort of, it's making him a good living. He's doing better and better. He's certainly a merchant class, he and his wife here in town. But with the coming of Fort Lewis, Ray hits the jackpot. And that is that with the building of a big military base and the second or the first world war, DuPont comes and builds a munitions plant here mm. to create bombs and bullets, you know, and raise there with wood flour. And the old wisdom of the, of the Chinese firecracker man was that wood flour was a base material in the creation of explosives. And he had already been selling a little bit of wood flour to some of the ex- small explosive companies here that were creating dynamite for blowing up stumps and in the timber industry and in the woods. But when the war started, then it was the DuPont the whole town of DuPont out near Fort Lewis was built around for workers at the big demolition, at the big munitions plant. That, I did not know that about DuPont. I always just thought it was a coincidence that it was named after the company that owns that. But it was actually... Yeah, built. far and away the okay. biggest explosives manufacturing operation in the state, if not the whole Northwest, was wow. at DuPont right outside wow. the military base. And Ray got the contract. And here's Ray with a contract with the biggest sawmill in the area at the Tacoma St. Paul and an exclusive contract to pick up the sawdust for free. He mills it and then sells it to DuPont. And it's like printing money. (laughs) And so by the time the First World War is over, by 1920, Ray is exclusively just producing wood flour, uh, kind of getting out of the fuel business. And by then, he's on his way to being a millionaire at a time when, in 1920, a million dollars was a lot of money. Yeah, we looked it up. It's like, uh, how much did we comparatively? I just looked at what it was in 1935. And so a million dollars in 1935 was over $22 million today. Yeah. So we're saying a millionaire at that time, not by their standards. It was worth over, he was worth over a million dollars at that time. Okay, wow. So now his life gets a little bit easier in a way. I mean, he's kind of got this automatic money making machine where Mm -hmm. his people just go and pick up free sawdust and take it to the mill. They turn it into wood flour and he hauls it out to DuPont. Eventually, he builds a, a wood flour production mill out at DuPont. So now it's even easier. And really, he can then just really, he and his wife both begin to look at indulging 
themselves and some of the other interests he has. By the 1920s, he owns several pieces of property. He buys a sawmill in Proctor. And by 1928-29, he builds the Ray Gamble building Mm. where Knapp's is today, which was apartments upstairs and retail down below. And so he gets into real estate, starts building buildings, owning property, uh, and then... um, And then, aside from the money-making business side of things, uh, Ray and Addie both have personal interests, and we're back to the elephant again. (laughs) Ray begins to collect elephants, and we're talking about somebody with a lot of money who's not just collecting any old carved elephant. Mm. Ray begins to travel all over the world. Ray and Addie go all over the world, Asia, Europe, Africa, everywhere and collecting the rarest elephants, carved elephants, small elephants, artwork that they can find. And he, I mean, at one point, I think it's the third largest piece of crystal quartz in the world carved into an elephant that Ray has. He's got diamonds and gold. Wow. (laughs) It's an incredible collection. Carved ivory was a favorite of his. I found an article about it. And at that point... The collection was only 2000 <laughs> And I found it very interesting. They refer to his wife as the keeper of the elephants. Uh, she's the elephant keeper. <laughs> and of course, they mentioned in the article, because it was written, I don't know when this was written exactly, but uh, because somebody has to dust those. <laughs> I bet, yes. Uh, uh, as someone who's had knickknacks in the past, this is, I don't have so many on purpose. <laughs> well, and Ray, in the middle of this, I mean, you know, Ray puts his money in the right place Mm -hmm. right as the Depression hits in 1929. And while everybody else in the country is, you know, in the depths of of an economic depression, Ray buys the Elephant House, buys the Walker Stone Mansion on 30th, and turns it into the Elephant House. It becomes a showplace for his elephant collection. And it's still there today. I mean, the Elephant House is this stone building. Walker, the Walker family were the ones who started the sandstone quarry out at uh, Wilkeson. Mm. And that sandstone is used in our state capital. It's kind of the finest cut stone that we have in the area. So the owner of that company, his mansion gets sold during the Depression and Ray buys it. And instantly goes in. All the louvers over the heating vents are all inscribed with ele- carved with elephants. No. Wow. He puts elephant light fixtures. I mean, you know, everywhere he could put an elephant, in addition to his thousands of carved elephants. So did, uh, it, did it go from amazing and attractive to a little bit tacky at some point, or does he maintain well, the beauty it, in class? Yeah, it goes... I, I don't think it was ever tacky. I think Ray and Eddie had pretty good taste. It's good. kind of like Hearst Castle, you know, <laughs> William Randolph Hearst. He just, it's a little over the top. Yes. Just because he's over the top. He's <laughs> over the top. I and read that his elephant collection, it was so large that it was basically like they're on all surfaces, they're on the floor, they're just lined up everywhere. Just everywhere you turn is another elephant because there's nowhere to put them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He really, he was prone to conversation pieces to things that would engage people and and Mm. bring them in. He just loved that 
part of it, uh, both he and Addie. They were both very affable people. And I think that the elephant collection was just a way to kind of <laughs> get just engage people, you know. I mean, how can you not? Right. Kinda, Talk about all the elephants, yeah. yeah. How, was he a good storyteller, he and Addie? As, of course. Mm-hmm. Ray's been dead for years, so but he had to be mm-hmm. uh, incredibly affable. All kinds of pictures of him with people, and and we we haven't even started to talk about Ray's other great passion yeah, yeah. in life, which is magic, stage magic. And as a young person, and maybe even from going back to the Firecracker Man, this sort of sense of things in the world that just seem fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, that are just worth diving into, that mm-hmm. are just... And Ray, very early on, was interested in card tricks and sleight of hand, that kind of stuff. But as he grew a little bit older and as his wealth had accumulated, he really dove into it deeply, uh, really got into... He was president of the, you know, West Coast Association of Magicians. I've written about this a little bit, but in the days before television... Stage magic was a really big deal. Television kind of took the magic out of magic, right, you know, because right. you could do anything and it could be fake. Right. You know, it's like deep fake stuff, you know. Uh, but before that, when you somebody was right in front of you and they could turn a gerbil into a rabbit right in front of your eyes or they could levitate a bouquet of flowers in in the air it was pretty you know you marveled at that sure and at that time your entertainment options were limited by our standards so i could see it being a really really popular thing for sure you see people singing and dancing or magic shows and or a play and that's kind of vaudeville which was the old Mm -hmm. live theater thing you Every vaudeville bill would have a magician mm-hmm, in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd have people getting sawed in half and big, dazzling illusions. But, you know, the big celebrities in the entertainment business, a lot of them came from the magic world. There was Carter and Blackwell and Mandrake and Houdini, and mm-hmm. all of whom, by the way, came to Tacoma and stayed with Ray. Oh, and wow. then there were all these people that were amateur magicians that were celebrities in their own right. So Orson Welles, whose daughter lived here in Tacoma, and Orson Welles came to Tacoma often. General MacArthur, Edgar Bergen, you know, Candace Bergen's father. Will Rogers. Will Rogers came to Ray's house. When I was reading it, because I didn't know much about Will Rogers, of course, I've heard his name before, and he was in vaudeville as well. Right? Yep. Was he oh, not the not one know. with the the ventriloquist dummies? Which one was that? Was That's it Will Edgar Bergen. Edgar yeah. Bergen. Yeah, you know the ventriloquist dummy with the monocle and the top yes, hat. Yes, yes, yes. That was him because I hadn't heard that name before. Yep. But then once I saw that, oh, oh, yeah, no, we know who this yeah. is. Will Rogers was he was a kind of a satirist and a political mm-hmm. commentator. Had a radio program, but he was a beloved figure in American culture in the 19-teens and 20s, got on the radio kind of, Mm. and uh, tragically, he was big into aviation, came through Tacoma, and then on his way to Alaska in an airplane, which was pretty novel in those days, and then died in an airplane crash crash in Alaska. Did I read that he was the first man to fly solo around the world? Uh, I don't think so, but Will Rogers, who in the days of Lindbergh and that mm-hmm. whole aviation, the early days of aviation, he was a big advocate for for aviation. And his mm-hmm. flyer, his partner, a man named Wiley Post, came to Tacoma very often. He was in the Northwest mm-hmm. a lot. 
Will Rogers was. We digressed. I know, we did. did. Now we're on to Will. We can do an episode about Will Rogers. So was Ray, did he have a special trick that he was well known for? Well, he was was really big into card tricks. Mm. So that was his, and in fact, he sort of indulged the whole, they were, it was called a ring, which is kind of the local club Mm -hmm, of magicians. So the Tacoma ring was part of a larger Northwest ring. And Ray created this elaborate, trophy and got up the idea that every year they would they would inscribe the name of the magician who came up with the coolest card trick and you got extra points if it was <laughs> somebody could do it without being a high skill you know if it was a minimum amount of actual gadgetry and it, it was just a really cool thing you could do then you'd get your name on the Ray Gamble trophy wow for card tricks you know so did the trophy have an elephant on it somewhere <laughs> uh, no I have a picture of it do you? It's, yeah it's got a deco it's got a lady this sort of in this dancing huge big cast lady on the top of it and she's got a deck of cards that are in hand, so of course. Yeah, I'll have to get that photograph but, from you for sure. Yeah. Sounds like Ray enjoyed being the life of a party. Could you say that about him? Yes. He he was a showman. Okay. You know, the one addition he made to the Elephant House was underneath the garage at the Elephant House, he built a theater. Mm. And in the sort of entry area before you went into the theater, the theater's still there, and it has the big curtains on it with RG, you know, Ray Gamble on the curtain. Love it. But in the entryway, before you go into the seating area, Ray put in sliding panels in the wall that were, that had slot machines in them for his friend. This at a time when slot machines were not legal. Okay. Um, He had a mirror on the wall when people would come down there, he'd have them, he'd pull a little diamond ring out and have them put it on and sign their name in the mirror with the diamond ring. <laughs> so like Orson Wells. Oh, wow. And then he would say, just keep the ring. <gasps> so, so the mirror with Showed all this, <laughs> the mirror with all the signatures in it was down in the theater area. So, and then he would have People come and they would do magic shows and other kinds of shows in the in the basement at the house. I'm wondering so. if he had some secret panels for some secret bottles of whiskey too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think as you know, Shay, that uh, you came across some of the police reports about Ray <laughs> having trouble with the prohibition laws, <laughs> and uh, th- that's probably true. He was you charged two hundred dollars. <laughs> no. <laughs> That was possession. a lot back then, though. Think about I think, that. Because I think that was in, I want to say, 1917. I saw that article, and yeah, it was charged $200 for possession, illegal possession of alcohol. Because prohibition in Washington started in, what, 1916? Well, it started than- in Tacoma and Washington early. It didn't mm-hmm. take effect as an amendment to the Constitution until 1920, I believe. But yeah, here in Washington, we were progressive, so we were four years earlier we were in getting a- prohibition. <laughs> yeah. We were pro- prohibition progressives. But, uh, on the other <laughs> hand, it, you had to be, it had to be a pretty fl- fragrant violation of the law to get arrested in Tacoma, because there was never a time where Tacoma was <laughs> really following the we law. We were not really into prohibition. Right, yeah. Well, it kind of sounded, from the article I found, it sounded as if he was maybe in cahoots with a local druggist, I think at Acme drug store in transporting this for sale, perhaps, like maybe right, he was, was a little bit of a bootlegger. 
Which I was wondering for a two hundred dollar fine at that era yeah. seems pretty steep. Well, when he finished the Gamble apartment building in Proctor, the main corner tenant there was a drugstore. Mm. So, and that would have been opened up during Prohibition. Mm. So, maybe <laughs> likely, likely could have maybe happened. Maybe it's just a lesser talked about extra side business he had going on. Yeah. <laughs> So Tacoma, before Prohibition, because of the size of the breweries here in Tacoma, it was something like one in every 10 households in Tacoma had somebody working in the, in the brewery business. So it was not a business where the local economy really depended on that. And because Tacoma was a place where sailors and lumberjacks mm-hmm. and people working mm-hmm. in the woods would come to spend their money, I mean, by 1918, Tacoma had 10,000 theater seats downtown. 10,000 wow. people were in the theater seat yeah. every night. Because so, I would I'd imagine back then theater would not be something everyone got to do, right? Would you have to be more wealthy or no? No, no because done these it? are, mo- you know, the Pantages theaters finished in 1919, mm-hmm. Rialto 1918. Uh, we actually had the big Tacoma Theater, which 2,000 seats was wow, you know, before wow. the turn of the century. But yeah, you could start to go to the movies, you know, the silent movies, and you'd go to vaudeville. So you'd go mm-hmm. and watch magicians and dog and pony acts and, you know, all that stuff was going on downtown. So Ray's fascination with show business and all that stuff was pretty supported by the community of Tacoma during his during his years. Right. In a way, he was a lucky guy. He was just in the right place, you know, and he was pursuing things he loved about life and he made a bunch of money and so could live pretty large and he loved it, you right. know. He lived it large, right. you know. He, he was out there like doing he, it. He yep. sounds like he was a guy who loved life and found ways to not just survive but to really become wealthy like he really took his passions to the next level so there's there's one sort of a little bit darker side to things that comes up and uh, again back to ray's encounter his exchange with the firecracker men and that was that when the firecracker men ray would say shared with him the secret of wood flower which would make his fortune for him. There was this kind of a sense of caution about it. Though it was a secret that Ray kept, and he didn't tell that story freely. And it, not that it was a curse, but there was the suggestion that somehow a lot of lives kind of are tied to the industry and explosives and all that stuff, that it comes at a cost. And mm-hmm. there's, a, there's an aspect to this that it's kept secret, it's kept quiet for a reason, that there may be this isn't something you should flout too much. And I think Ray kind of kept that, was aware of that. Well, by the time we get to the late 1930s, Ray's production of wood flour for the DuPont company, as America's starting to realize we're headed towards the Second World War, Ray's making a lot more money selling wood flour. In fact, he sells the company for millions along the way. But Ray is kept on as a sort of consultant and an advisor. And as we get closer to the war, Ray is given security clearance at Fort Lewis. Oh, wow. And eventually, Ray is brought into 
consult on the use of wood flour and the development of explosives for a new application in the realm of explosives. And we know that Ray had security to be able to go to eastern Washington, where, and not to get to Oppenheimer about this here for a second, but in eastern Washington, uh, in the Tri-Cities, the Manhattan Project was under construction, was under development. And Ray would have been brought into the very small circle of people who were aware of what the Manhattan Project was all about because of his operational understanding uh, and the science of wood flour and the potential use of wood flour as a component in the building of a new weapon that would be devastating in its mm-hmm. power. Mm-hmm. And Ray was brought into that circle. It was a secret that he knew. And you get the sense that Ray was just a little bit haunted by the suggestion of something like a curse that came from his the beginnings. When he was poor and didn't have anything, he was entrusted with something that would make his wealth, it would mm-hmm. make his fortune. But there was a cautionary aspect to it. Now, Ray is an older man now in his 50s or 60s. He's starting to see what might be the specter of that curse coming back to affect him. And then you know, maybe through the war, the worst, darkest aspect of that starts to become a reality. And Ray admits later on and mentions this late in life that the end of the Second World War was an incredibly hard part of him because, in fact, that is what happened. The weapons that were used, the bombs that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima used wood flour as the buffering material in the atomic bomb. And Ray would have known about that. So all of this would have been going on Mm. in his mind. And there is a time there uh, after 1945, 46, where Ray's joie de vivre, you know, his engagement with the love of life, the luckiness that he had enjoyed all his life, starts to really start to have a bit of an effect on him. But he recovers. He comes out of it. Um, the last years of his life, the last two decades of his life, he embraces again magic, gets back into it. He becomes very philanthropic. We haven't talked about one thing, and that was that starting at about the same time in the late 30s, Ray starts to put incredible amount of energy into the Lincoln apartment building, mm. which he buys at Second Yakima. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for the rest of his life, it becomes a new passion for Ray. And he goes, even in the years right after the the end of the Second World War, Ray and Addie go to go to Japan. They go to Asia. And he begins to really, something he had always been doing, but something he really takes a fas- passion into is uh, ceramic tiles and architectural fragments. And they begin to go around the world and buy tile fragments from 13th century cathedrals Hmm. and just the amazing arts and crafts era uh, ceramic tile. And uh, Ray begins to hire artists and artisans and he begins to transform the Lincoln apartments, which are about 30 units in there, into this ultra-modern, fantastic building. The interior of the Casablanca apartments is breathtaking. To it's this day? Even now. I'm it's, hoping to get 
that we can get in to see it someday. Oh. My brother told me that he looked into leasing an apartment there back in the, I, it must have been the 90s, but he said that the shower head came up to about his nipple. <laughs> and so he didn't. He is a tall guy, but He is still. very tall. <laughs> well, when my wife and I came to Tacoma in about 88, the first place we lived was the penthouse at the Casablanca. Did you really? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Did you take pictures when you lived there? Yeah, yeah. they're in the I gave Great. You some okay, awesome. I'm going to yeah. peruse those. We'll put them on our social media. So the the inside is unbelievable. I mean, Ray, not only did he put tile and murals, there's corridors where you walk down and the mural is just like this mythical landscape with knights and queens and you know painted on the walls just <laughs> and whole ceramic tile murals that are put in living rooms the baseboard heat just exotic woods from all over I mean, wow, wow. doorknobs that were gold finished he had the apartment on the top floor had a um electric eye in the 19 like 1950 an electric eye. So if somebody came up the back stair, a little alarm would tell you that somebody was wow. there. In the mailboxes for every unit, the bottoms of the mailboxes had little rheostats on them, and the the floor of each mailbox was hinged. So when the mailman came, if there was mail, it hit the contact, and a light went on in your apartment to tell you no, you had mail. That's wow. so cool. In, <laughs> in the back, behind, there was a garage, and it was a turntable. So when you pulled your uh -huh. car in, you would park, and then you would hit a button, and the whole turntable would turn around so your car was faced out again. I, I did out. not know that existed so, back then because yep. I've crazy. seen those in Japan. I think they're cool. I sit there and watch people just turn their cars around on the turntable because <laughs> it's so interesting. But yeah. wow, wow. Do you know if he used any of those tiles in his own home? Yes. Okay. Yeah. His and especially in the theater area. And he tiled the inside of his garage. Wow. The <laughs> other thing he tiles. loved was the other thing he loved was neon. So he would use glass tiles with colored neon wow. behind it Ugh, and I create archways. This. I mean, uh, beautiful metalwork. I mean, polished copper. I mean, it just it's yeah. It, so it's when just, people move into the Casablanca apartments, are they given the history behind it, or are they just in there going, "Wow, this is really." Uh, unique and cool, but yeah, no the idea. manager there has been there a long time. She's an artist too, oh, and good, so yeah. it, it's not very usual that units open up in there. Especially ah. the the really special units are pretty long time tenants in the. What do they the rent units. for? Do you know? Do you happen to know what they're going for now no, these days? No, I don't. Know. <laughs> well, and I would imagine you've got this. The lease is probably a mile long because there's probably a lot of caveats about right. any of damage to that original upgrades and stuff you like do. don't you can't touch it <laughs> yeah well Ray, i'd be afraid people tenants are terrible they would just ruin <laughs> it all well they've been they ray left even before he died he dedicated all of the rental income off the casablanca to ups mm. and then when he passed away he left the building to ups they then uh, since then, they've sold it. But the current owners are very careful about it because mm -hmm. there was a time where 
people were starting to get in there. And some of these individual arts and crafts tiles, I mean, they're they're by major artist makers. Right. So they're hot, very, very valuable. So the building's secure now. There are missing tiles mm, inside right. that where people have gotten in and shipped it out. So you have to be a little understanding that you can't just throw it open and, right. you know, I mean, it's... A, yeah, absolutely. A, for example, they have resisted having it being designated a historic building. So even though it's unquestionably one of the most unusual buildings mm-hmm. in the whole country. What's um, the what's behind the resistance of making it? Uh, well, building? it's partly the notoriety of it. I mean, I even feel a little bit guilty here <laughs> raving on about it because it's so special and so unique. But And there is a sense of stewardship and care given the owners and the, the manager, the people that maintain the building. They have a superintendent. They really take wow. care of it. And they really, and they and the people that live there are a community that watch out for each other and for the building itself. So it's a unique, wonderfully balanced situation. But in a way, it's Ray's greatest gift. I mean, it was of all the things he did, the lasting things he did, I think, the Casablanca. Because, you know, the Elephant House wasn't built for him. He just modified it. Mm-hmm. The, the the Casablanca was handcrafted by Ray. 18 years he spent wow, putting and years. every... Every square inch of the corridors and everything are, Just, you know. The amount of accomplishments that he's got in his lifetime and then still spending 18 years on one apartment complex, just crazy to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Very driven man. Yep. With an eye for what he wanted, for sure. Yep. Now, was his, do you know what ended up happening to his elephant collection? Did it get auctioned off? Does family have it? Do you know? Yeah, I've come across, it ended up, his second wife, uh, Addie, passed away, and uh, in about five or six years before Ray died, and I want to say it was six years. I think she died about nineteen early sixties, and then Ray remarried. Helen, uh, that and he married. this is Helen, okay. yeah, and then Helen kept the collection and lived in the house for five or six years after Ray's passing. And then she sold the entire thing in one sale. Mm. Now, I had heard a story that the <laughs> the purchaser was another elephant collector who Ray knew oh. and that there was an agreement <laughs> between the two of them that whoever died first uh-huh. would leave the would give the other the chance to buy the okay. other's collection. Shot, yeah. So but I've also seen uh, reference to there being an auction where the pieces were sold off by a dealer. Yeah, I saw so something sure. about just a f- small fraction of the collection went was valued at over a million dollars. So I'm sure the whole thing got gave the estate quite a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Again, values are so mm-hmm. fluid, you know, over time. So well, um, and uh, so many of the pieces he had custom made. So how do you value that? You yeah. know, and I know he. I was reading that he did love elephant. He would have them commissioned in Japan. That he would send them raw material and have them carve his elephants and then send them back. And yeah. he really liked them, I guess, because their trunks are always up in the air mm-hmm. when you get them from Japan. Well, he had yeah, he had favorite artists that he would commission from, and he would get a piece of ivory or a piece of 
gemstone or whatever, and then he would he would figure out which artist he wanted mm-hmm. to have carve that piece into an elephant for him. Touching um, back on when you talked about him and Addie visiting Asia and Japan, this would have been after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, they traveled both before and after. And, you know, we don't think about it today. In fact, it's kind of weird how so many people live in Tacoma don't even recognize we're a port city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before freeways and airplanes, that was a lot of steamship and passenger travel in and out of of Tacoma. And it was relatively easy. Tacoma's big Japanese population Mm -hmm. was because Mm -hmm. the railroad operated a steamship line that went between Tacoma and Yokohama. So we had lots of – and it was no big deal. I mean, there were – of the merchant class within our Japanese community before the Second World War, they would go back and forth vacation or to go back to get married or attend somebody's christening or a wedding or a funeral. So there was it was fairly easy to travel across the Pacific by steamship. In the 30s, Nettie and, and Ray would have, would have traveled across. Mm-hmm. It would have been easier to get to Japan than it would be to get to uh, Cairo. Um, wow. Well, so. and was it a, about 13 days to get to Japan from here, or was it 30 days? I want to say it was only 13. I, I oh, want to yeah. say it was fairly yeah. short with steamships. Yes, yes. By the time steamships came I mean, in. that's just like a cruise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I think on the fast, on the, Japan was close because you could, you know, on a flat map, you don't see the curvature of the earth. But mm-hmm. actually, if you take an arc across, it's like the polar flights for airplanes, you know, it's a lot close, you know, it's quicker, shorter flight. If you fly from Seattle to London over the polar route than if you go to New to New York mm, and right, then across right. the Atlantic. So if you take an arc across the North Pacific, it's a fairly quick trip mm-hmm. to get to, to Japan. I mean, it's only a nine-hour flight from Seattle. Yeah. Except for when I go and it turns into a 12-and-a-half-hour flight for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shay's luck. Back to the magic yes. for a second. It is it, – I've got a couple little books here, but we had conferences here for magicians. I just – love it. I, this whole kind of – era of Ray and the magnetic sort of presence he created for this hobby that became a passion for him. There were magic stores in Tacoma. There were contests. The theaters would have magic shows come in and teach kids, school kids, how to do magic. You could go and buy a magic kit, you know. The... um, alley that runs behind uh, where the Rialto is in the back of the Knights of Pythias building, which is kind of a magical building in its own right. But for like all the way through the 1950s and 60s, there was a magic store there, Hmm. like Daikon Alley, you know, in or Harry Potter, you know, there was, Mm -hmm. people would go down, kids would go in and they would buy magic stuff. And Ray had a sort of protege here, a young man named Co Norton, who was a became a sort of celebrity in the magic world. He ended up learning magic and doing stage magic. But there was a kind of superhero in the magic world in comic books called uh, Mandrake the Magician. I think I've heard of this. And yeah. And it was a big deal on radio and all that kind of stuff. Well, for a long time there was a uh idea that 
some people believe that television was incompatible with magic, that you couldn't do it because of what we've already talked about, how it, it, everybody was suspicious of everything. Nothing was real, typical magic. But in the 1950s, they finally decided that they were going to do a radio or a television program called Mandrake the Magician. And so they went ahead, they looked around for somebody to play the part. They Ray was consulted on the deal, and in the end, he picked Coe Norton, oh. who had graduated from Stadium High School oh, wow. and was sort of the protege, whatever. And so they ended up getting the money. It was like CBS, so one of the big networks to be in. They filmed the whole season. It was like nine, ten episodes of, of Mandrake, the magician, and it was going to come out the same time as like, you know, Superman was on television and oh, wow. it was going to be kind of this superhero thing with this Tacoma actor, you know, who's going to play the whole thing. And then as if by, for no unexplainable reason, it got canceled and it was never shown. Before it even got started, it never was happened. Oh, yeah. no. But they filmed it all? It was all filmed, but oh, nobody ever goodness. saw it. Nobody ever knew anything about it. And then as if by magic, <laughs> a company found the old footage oh wow and it showed up on the internet with co norton from tacoma playing mandrake the magician oh my goodness so, imagine finding uh, that gold <laughs> so yeah so ray would have lived to see the tv show come back to see the sort of re return of of stage magic on mm. television, you know, would have been able to see that. Mm. Um, but then it never would have been seen. So Ray would have died before anybody never would have been able to see the the end of the of the film. But Did anyway, you ever try to track that down that footage to maybe show at the Blue Mouse because that would it's have on been, my website. Is it? Okay, I found it's on YouTube. Oh, yeah. So go that's for wonderful. go look for Mandrake the Magician. It's in a format that is it's black and white okay. and it's pretty fuzzy but it you can follow the story and you can okay. kind of see the we'll whole have to thing check that out. so yeah anyway yeah so I whenever i when i found that or when i first looked at it i thought you know i never got to meet ray but at least i got to see mandrake on right television, in action so in action cool. in movement yeah because yeah. we don't have any film of ray we don't have i haven't been able to find any recordings of him, so I've never heard his voice. Hmm. Um, I obviously I never met him, so that level of intimacy I've just never been able to get to. Right, but to really but, capture his personality, yeah, yeah. And he never was filmed, you know. I mean, we've got still photographs and stuff, but it he's just that gauzy figure that's just a little bit out of touch, just that just a little bit beyond, little mysterious. Mm -hmm. he yeah, was that. A little yep. mis mystique about him. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a hundred years later. A lot of his, a lot of what he's provided this area is still here. It's still magical, even. Yep. You know, the Casablanca uh, apartments being so amazing, and and now people take care of. You got the Elephant House, all of that. That's just insane yeah. that he's still such a character here. And I've yep. never heard of him till now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in hearing his story from you and what I've found online, he almost feels like a character who kind of represents Tacoma. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. He he kind of represents the spirit yes. of Tacoma, of this pull yourself up by the bootstraps, get out there, a little bit quirky. We can do amazing things. Mm -hmm. Let's just turn this simple thing into something amazing. Yep. I think mm -hmm. you're right. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. 
I think it's a great representation. And I had never heard about him until maybe it was your website that I saw or something else. I think it was I saw a little blurb on the Elephant House because I do love the architecture of Tacoma. And then that led me down that rabbit hole where it was perfect because I had just met you. <laughs> and here it is that you're basically the expert that I know yeah, in yeah. this area and on him. And I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> no, but I think you're right. I went I down a there, road. <laughs> I, I think there, in him and his life and his story, there is there is something about something that gives you insight into the unique character of the city we mm-hmm. live in. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's like Dale Chihuly or anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're not like you know, it's not Orson Welles. It's not like a world figure, but it is a local hero that's. I don't know. That's a window into how what makes our city different mm-hmm. than other places. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We are a port city. There is this international aspect. There's a ethnic and a cultural makeup of Tacoma that's idiosyncratic, you know. It's And it it's all started with and fish. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> fish on the port. And yep. an exchange between a Chinese firecracker uh-huh. man, which, it, you know, at the turn of the century connected to a transcontinental railroad and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And some guy who ends up having a superhero on television and somehow there's a through line that yes. is about us, you know, that yes. kind of makes sense. Well, and even though Ray was a white man, the interaction with this immigrant really is what sparked the rest of his life, which is yeah. very interesting because the city, is, as we heard about in your excellent presentation you give, this is a city of immigrants. This place is here because of immigrants, mm-hmm. and it is what it is today because of those immigrants. And even though white men typically get all the glory, we can still trace roots back yep. to the contributions of those immigrants, which... I think is a good part of his story for sure. Yep. Yep. And fish. Yeah. <laughs> like it's immigrants the, and fish. Immigrants and fish. <laughs> and sawdust. And sawdust. sawdust. Yeah, not a not a sexy topic. Saw, <laughs> sawdust wood flower. <laughs> I was really hoping you'd have a little bit more info on his bootlegging. <laughs> <laughs> she wants the salacious. I know. Details. I want the salacious details because he sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> Yeah, but he was a small timer. Boy, yeah. if you want to get in the bootlegging topic, we can go a long way. With I that. might have There's to do that. There's much bigger yeah. players in that game than him. Yeah, so, he was uh, a dabbler in that too. Yeah, I noticed he dabbled in many things, right? But most people who dabble in that many things don't find success at the level that he did in so many of those things. Yeah. Um, do you think he would have found that that kind of success in magic and um, architecture and all of that if he hadn't first? found success with this sawdust wood flower process. Yeah. What we what we overlook a little bit is that he was a businessman. Right. He was in a part of the world where wood products, forest products, were a growing area of commerce. We were and, rich in that resource. And he was just a different... He just looked in a different way at the same thing that sawmills and warehouser and, you know, all the other... Harmon Furniture, I mean, people, all these other products that were coming out that people were making money off of. It's just he found a little niche. Uh, He was innovative enough. Uh, He was a good enough businessman to be able to prosper off of it. So, yeah, we talk a lot about the magic of it, but, you know, there's some pretty uh, (laughs) just basic 
economics going on that is part of his mm-hmm. life too that he understood and he was good at. So absolutely. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you for sharing this story with us today. This has been thrilling for me. I don't know about uh, you, yeah, Jody, yeah, definitely. But I've just been sitting here just <laughs> I know. like a little child, soaking just so it excited. in. <laughs> this was an amazing story. An amazing man. You're a great storyteller, by the way. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Are there any pet projects that you want people to know about right now? Maybe something in preservation that people could go become more aware of or sign a petition to save a certain building or support in any way? Well, I'm very much involved in the Nettie Asbury house up on the hilltop and Nettie's story and that building and that project. So that's a positive for me. I worry about, you know, the Ryan house in Sumner right now is a pioneer building that's right downtown Sumner that you know, may get demolished. Uh, Was it impacted by the fire? Is that why? No, no? it was going to be restored and then just political winds changed and the city council just don't see a place for an old building, you know, in the the middle of a modern suburban or Mm. city. I worry about Holy Rosary Church. Oh. You know, the archdiocese is pretty well signaled that that, you know, spire that we all see when we drive down I-5, I'm not sure that building is going to be able to <laughs> be with us for long. Oh, that's so a shame. I think we have to pay attention to that. Um, There's the landmark on the sound. Is there any hope of stopping demolition on that one? Or oh, is it I a think done so. Deal? You know, it's a residential building. It's a huge building that would be so much easier to adaptively reuse for housing Mm -hmm. than to demolish and, you know, and try to build new apartments or whatever. For the older city areas like Tacoma and for our area where you've got a built environment in place already, for environmental reasons, we need to be much more mindful of the adaptive reuse Mm -hmm. potential in what's already built rather than having everything go to the landfill and start mm-hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. So environmentally, I you know, I'm very much involved. I know Deputy Mayor Walker is involved in doing what Portland does, which is if you're gonna demolish a building that's over fifty years old, you have to take it apart and redirect the materials into reuse rather than mm. into the landfill. That's a great policy. So, and why and why that old? Why the age? Well, it's most this is mostly directed at residential buildings. And the reality is that these most of I mean, most of the neighborhoods in Tacoma, they're wood frame buildings. They're yeah. eighty or ninety percent of the building is made out of wood. Most of them were built before 1920, so it's old growth Mm -hmm. timber that Mm -hmm. they're made out of. And all that old growth has sequestered carbon in it, which when you send that to the landfill, all that carbon goes into into the atmosphere. It's a carbon release. So if we can reuse all that and hold that carbon in a a wood form and reuse it, then we do a lot better for the environment. And if we... If we release it, it's <laughs> shame on us. Mm, you yes, know, yes, it's absolutely. Just, well, we are rebuilding. A, we're building a, a recording studio, and we are repurposing almost everything. <laughs> it's mostly stuff that we just find in her shop, <laughs> <laughs> and some furniture I didn't know what to do with. <laughs> but repurposing everything. Do you know if McMinimans had looked at Landmark on the Sound at all? 
as a project? Because it seems right up their alley. They love yeah. those Masonic, old yeah. Masonic buildings. I don't know. Hmm. I think some contacts were probably made. I didn't make them. I didn't talk to Mike about it or anybody. So um, Anytime I mention to my dad that we're trying to get some tours with McMinimans and I have contact with some of the people in there now, he's like, you need to tell them about that place in Des Moines. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, I'm sure somebody's told <laughs> right. them about it already. Yeah. They're not going to take me going, hey, uh, you should check out this place. <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness Shay was here. <laughs> I know. We would never have known about this Identify building if it wasn't for Shay. <laughs> well, you know, we don't think about it, but that part of the state right now, you know, the Warehouser Headquarters building, which is 50 years old now. The oh, one that right, right there weird walkway Federal Way. With all the, yeah. yeah, that's also, you know. Uh, its future is clouded as mm, well. Yeah. It seems so. like that would be a good place for like a community college. Oh, it's yep. an interesting place. I've been Green there. River Community College Annex right there. When I was, uh, when it was Warehouser and they were operating in there, I'd been there before for some conferences and it's, it's beautiful. Like uh, you're in the woods and you can feel it. Like you're in a building, but you're still yeah, in the forest. Out and the exterior of it is so cool. It's just, yeah, it's, it it's, it is. It's weird. Could, you're like, what I just is never. That? It's so great. No. Understood why they would have vacated that. Yeah, as amazing it, it is. I think it you're is. right. It would be very adaptable for uh, educational use. Mm -hmm. Community mm -hmm. college would be great mm -hmm. for that. But I think mm -hmm. there was some discussion about some of like the. Um, Urban Waters building, the idea of maybe there'd be a state agency there that mm. would be related to environment or something. Because yeah. it's already built, you know. Right, right. Yeah. But, but part of the importance of that building architecturally and as a landmark is the open space around it. You know, it's that kind of, it's the equivalent of like a 15-story building, but it's laying on right. its side. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it looks out over that big open yeah. field that you mm -hmm. see that's part of the importance of it the company that now owns the entire campus builds um builds warehouses mm. so it is kind of terrifying to think oh, no, that, that, that just be whole area like, be surrounded warehouse land? yeah Ugh. when i when i was in there <laughs> this is bad i kind of got the feeling that it would make a good like Colt headquarters, <laughs> just like <laughs> you're looking out on the valley. It felt very. Ooh, now I really yeah. got to go in there. You know, I love me a cult. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey guys, we got to wrap this up. Michael, thank you so much for oh, being here. Oh, my pleasure. Here. This thank was absolutely just a blast for us. And for all the listeners out there, you can read his excellent articles on his website, TacomaHistory.live. He also often contributes to or you have, to the Columbia Magazine. Is that correct? Yep. Which is where I got a great article about Ray Gamble in the one from the fall 2018 edition of that. So that's TacomaHistory.live. I occasionally give presentations, like the one at McMinniman's Elks Lodge. Do you have any of those coming up? Uh, no. no. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, all right. We got our own private presentation. Right, here, we which did. <laughs> was even better. Yes, uh, I couldn't. I, I would have listened to you all night at McMinniman's, and I could have listened to you all day here for sure. <laughs> if we had had more time, <laughs> everybody do do check out Tacoma History Live and Michael's work um, because it just is. It makes living in the Northwest or the Tacoma area, when you understand the history or learn the history, you're just more engaged with your own community mm -hmm. and it just brings value to where you live. And mm -hmm. 
It enriches your experience. So this is, I I thank you for your work because you keep this stuff alive. Yes. These things would disappear into the history and never be known again if it weren't people like you. So I really appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you. I love what you guys are doing too. So let's find something else to Yes, Oh, we will. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, you guys. Don't forget to subscribe and follow our show. Share it with a friend. I'll have a link in the show notes that has a link to all the places that you can listen to it, as well as our own little website, which we are slowly building. And that would really help us to grow our listenership. So we will see you next time. Yep. See you next week. Another great episode. And see see you down down the rabbit hole. hole.